This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, November 1st, 2019, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. We have a really important show for you guys today. The opioid epidemic has taken the lives of many Americans, and today we have some of the people working to end this tragedy here with us to discuss their incredible work. First, let me introduce Justin Woods. Justin serves as Diversion Program Manager for the Drug Enforcement Administration's Washington Field Office. Good morning, Justin. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We also have Katherine Hayek here with us. Katherine is a national spokesperson for the DEA, and together they're going to talk to us about the great work the DEA is doing to keep opioids under control. Katherine, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. No problem. Thanks for having us here. So before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more about them, visit ltcfeds.com today. So to get us started, I'm really excited for this show. I want to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about what they do, who they are, and uh, what kind of experience they bring to the table. So Justin, let's start with you and some of the work you do. Sure. Uh, thank you. And uh, currently, I'm the Diversion Program Manager for the Washington Field Division. So what that really means is I oversee diversion operations and investigations for the state of Maryland, uh, the District of Columbia, and the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, I oversee four diversion groups, which focus on regulatory investigations, um, inspections of the controlled substance um, industry. And I work uh, as well with the tactical diversion squads who are working daily on criminal cases uh, focusing on drug diversion. Awesome. And Catherine? Hey, so I just started pretty recently as the public information officer kind of directing PR for all of the Washington Field Division. And as Justin said, that's Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, all of it. And it's really exciting because I just came over from headquarters and I get to go out to all the different Commonwealth areas, state areas, meet everyone, see what's out there and promote all the cool stuff we're doing. So, Yeah, I know one of the things we're going to talk about is how you guys take a very multifaceted approach to understanding the opioid epidemic and the drug problem in this country in general. And so I really like that we're going to be able to hit on all these different perspectives and, you know, kind of see how the whole thing works together. Uh, But to start off, let's, you know, I know the opioid epidemic has impacted the lives of many Americans, but from the people who really deal with this impact, how would you describe this problem? What are some of the insights you can give us about what the opioid epidemic looks like? Well, I think when you look at the drug problem nationally, different geographic regions have different drug problems. If you're in rural Missouri or Tennessee, you may be Um, facing a lot of methamphetamine labs. But when it comes to one problem that plagues the entire country, it's the opioid epidemic. So no matter what state or area of the country you're in, you're faced with prescription drug abuse um, along with the misuse of heroin and fentanyl. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was reading some of the numbers from the CDC and just, you know, in the last 20 years, more than 700,000 people have died from drug overdoses. And of those, over 400,000 have been opioid related, which I think is really significant. Um, and you've talked a little bit about, you know, opioid is the large stretching problem. But I also know that fentanyl and heroin are part of the problem as well. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you've seen that even perhaps over time, what you've noticed? Sure. Um, 
really as, as, as people started um, abusing the pharmaceutical controlled substances in the 90s, I mean, the problem's always been there, but really in the, the mid to late 90s, we really saw the, the problem skyrocket. And then you fast forward into the 2000s with the advent of internet online pharmacies where people were able to obtain prescription drugs so much easier than, than before. And as we began to clamp down on diversion of the pharmaceutical industry, people that had that addiction and that craving for those drugs had to turn to cheaper, more available alternatives. And we saw the resurgence of heroin and fentanyl. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about addiction is that you can take one drug off the street, but when you you know have a, a very addicted culture in some areas, it's easy for other drugs to pop up and take the place and um, become part of that problem as well. So with the understanding that this is more than just law enforcement, you know, what is the DEA's approach to solving this problem? So we, we take a 360 strategy. So it, it combines our law enforcement efforts, which we are known for. We are the Drug Enforcement Administration. Absolutely. So we're always known as a law enforcement agency. But what a lot of people don't understand is the regulatory work that we do, as well as the community outreach. It is critical that we get to the younger people in our communities we get into the schools, the church groups, um, anywhere where we're invited, we're going to seek that opportunity to spread the message about the dangers of opioids. I think we all understand about heroin and fentanyl and cocaine and those drugs, but a lot of people go into um, using pharmaceuticals innocently. They're prescribed by a doctor and they may or may not truly understand the addictive potential of some of these drugs. So we try to educate people that obviously these drugs have a medicinal use and a purpose and they're needed, but when misused or used for extended periods of time can result in problems. Yeah, and I know, Catherine, you had talked a little bit about that 360 approach and how you guys try to reach all these different areas. Uh, so if you could speak a little bit to that as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think one of the, the biggest things I love to talk about is how, of course, we're a law enforcement agency is, Justin mentioned, and I think people know a lot about that, but they don't know a lot about all the other things we do that almost, I mean, we have people who are investigating all the time. We also have people who are doing the regulatory side and we'll get into more of that and what that means. And we have people who are doing outreach all the time and additional people who help with that because a lot of addressing the problem, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, is not just trying to stem the flow. But what's out there and the people who are dealing with that now in the moment, how can we help them and how can we help, you know, stop spreading this? And that's, you know, starting with the young kids and telling them, you know, we all went through programs like this red ribbon we have now. When I was younger, dare we had stuff like that. But giving them information, right, also giving the parents information. But we do so much more. We go out to all these events. <laughs> we have different social events where we spread the news about what we do and how we do it. And then we also have uh, a lot of educational events. And Justin, you, know, you can tell me more about stuff that you guys do here, but we go out and we are not only helping the public learn about what we do, and it's not all stay drug free. It's how do we combat things like addiction and how, you know, working with our community partners who work in that field working collaboratively with public efforts and public leaders to figure out how we can address it in certain areas, working with um, pharmacists and prescribing doctors to figure out their problems too. We want the systems that are in place to work well for the public and not just stop all drugs. And we uh, getting that message out there is very important for us and really exciting. Well, and it requires a lot of collaboration with right. state and local entities. You talked about, you know, church groups, community groups, mm -hmm. because if you're really going to stop the problem, it, you know, like you've mentioned, you need right. to address all these different facets of the problem. And I think that's something really interesting that we're going to spend a lot of time on later on is talking about how the DEA works with different groups in order to get this message out. Now, um, I think in 2017, I believe, there was almost this tipping point with the opioid epidemic 
where the president ordered um, a he he basically declared a public health emergency Mm -hmm. surrounding the opioid epidemic. I'm curious if that impacted how you guys approached the problem at all or or even the resources that you had to approach the problem coming out of the public health declaration. Well, I think that was very important because it just brought more exposure to a problem that we've been dealing with for years. And it's a problem that um, that we had to really address within our own agency and within the Department of Justice to really look at the problem in a different way. I think uh, for many years, prescription drugs were sort of an afterthought. Um, and some in, in prosecutions and even investigations didn't consider it as dangerous as other drugs like cocaine and heroin. Mm-hmm. But the pharmaceutical opioids are basically heroin in a pill form. That's what we try to get parents and children to understand. And we really had to look at the problem differently, and we had to talk to our prosecutors and explain because some of the doctors that have been arrested and prosecuted over the years we had to explain to them that what they were doing, even though they were issued a license by the state and a DEA registration, their activities had fallen into criminal activity. And it's it's not easy to sort of change that perception at times because we, from the time we're children, we're trained that, you know, our pediatrician is one of the people we can trust the most. So we, we, we love physicians and we realize they're critical to our health, but there's that very few number of physicians who do bad things And we certainly want to look into that. Yeah. And I think uh, we're going to take our first break here in just a second. But you guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We talked a lot about the 360 strategy. And when we come back from this break, we're going to talk more about that law enforcement element and how we catch those bad actors. See you guys in a minute. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are just diving into the law enforcement element of the DEA's approach to combat the opioid epidemic. You know, a few years ago, I um, I remember reading this New York Times article, and the headline was something along the lines of, uh, drug dealers are no longer standing on street corners. They're now standing behind pharmacy desks. And I remember reading that and thinking, like, what what a change, you know? How do you combat a problem when the people really do look like the people you trust most, your pediatricians, your doctors? And so I think it's important to kind of have this conversation about where these drugs are coming from and how that has changed over time. So, uh, Justin, Catherine, if you guys could give us some context for where this is coming from. Sure. Well, Um, Diverted pharmaceuticals come from many different places. Uh, They come from our medicine cabinets at home. Um, They can come from pharmacies, but it it really boils down to drug diversion. So when those drugs are diverted from the legitimate channels, so that could be um, prescription fraud, it could be pharmacy robberies, it could be over-prescribing by a physician or issuing prescriptions without ever even conducting a physical exam. Um, Those are the type of instances where we've seen people get easy access to pharmaceutical drugs. And I know um, Florida has been kind of, over time, a hub for some of this. Uh, You've mentioned before, like the Oxy Express in Florida. What did that situation look like? So if you rewind to around 2010, um, we saw people traveling from all parts of the country to Florida, particularly South Florida, Um, Broward County, Dade County. And at that time, I was working in Tennessee, and we saw a flood of people coming from all over the southeast, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, from as far away as the New England, Ohio area. They would drive down in bus loads, van loads. 
to these clinics where there was no exam being taken place at all. People were going in dozens at a time, um, being herded in and out to basically pay $300, $350 cash to receive prescriptions for a drug cocktail, oxycodone, a muscle relaxer, and a benzodiazepine like Xanax. Wow. That's really unbelievable. I'm from Florida, so hearing this stuff is always uh, kind of shocking to me. It's something that I think a lot of Floridians will admit they saw firsthand um, and kind of had an impact all over the country. Yeah, and and to add to that, and there are lots of other cases like that around the country. We, you know, just in our division recently, we had a big case like that in that went to sentencing in Virginia, right? Someone who just came in and was this bad actor who came in and tip we got we started the investigation based off tips which are certainly really important right because there are those bad actors out there they come in and they're operating what you know we colloquially call a pill mill right where they come in and they're just giving these prescriptions without any um uh, seeing any patients in the classical sense but i think it is worth noting that although we see this and that's what we're out there to kind of weed out for the most part, we have doctors who really want to do the right thing here, right? And we have, and we want to support them as well. I think our work in trying to weed out these bad actors, as we call them, are really to support that healthcare system that we have in that country, right? To make sure we can keep it positive and keep what we call the diversion from not happening. So we see this and we can talk about all these issues, but it is so important to mention, like, we're there to weed out the back there, bad actors to support people getting the medications they need, to support the doctors who are trying to do the right thing. And then we can use both tips and our investigative techniques to make sure this isn't happening as much. Well, and I think good doctors are probably guessing integral to helping find the bad actors Definitely. because it, it it could be easy for a doctor who's you know running a pill mill to almost exist in plain sight if his fellow doctors who are the good guys aren't you know stepping up and helping with reporting and giving tips to you guys so you can identify the people who are the real problem and get them out so that the good people can do their job right and that's exactly. why our tip line is so important we have doctors who report. We have pharmacists who report. We have public who reports. I mean, everyone out there who sees this happening, as Justin's example showed and a couple of the examples we talk about, can show it's it's usually pretty obvious in a, in a community, in a neighborhood, what's happening over time. And we can come in and help. Of course, we can use our investigative techniques to find that as well. But it's so helpful for the people on the ground in our neighborhoods and communities where we try to operate. We try to operate as a federal agency, but in each neighborhood and in each community and really have touch points there and people working out there so we can find these and weed them out and weed out the problem better. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, outreach and education, helping mm -hmm. doctors understand what overprescribing is and how to kind you know doctors yeah. are busy too and helping them understand you know what is the the right amount to give someone is also really important and so I know later in the show we're going to talk more about the education and outreach that you guys mm -hmm. do but I think I imagine that that's a big part of it because yeah. you know you you want the good doctors to be the best they can be and part of that is understanding the real scope of this problem exactly now, I was reading, um, you know, like I said, I'm from Florida, so I love my Florida stuff. <laughs> and the DEA actually just had a huge law enforcement bust in the last couple months in a statewide opioid sweep in Florida where they arrested over 300 people um, for bringing uh, different drugs into the state and uh, over $3.3 in assets from all of the, the, the ways that people were bringing these drugs and even weapons into the state. Um, and I know that there is an international, transnational element to the way that the drugs have been spreading. And so, Justin, if you could talk a little bit about what that looks like. Sure, absolutely. As we've clamped down on the pharmaceutical drugs, we've obviously seen an increase in the use of heroin. And what's even scarier is heroin that's been laced with fentanyl or even carfentanyl, which are um, synthetic opioids that are 50 times more potent than morphine. So these are drugs that just change the whole game of even heroin and how dangerous mm -hmm. it is. And, and these drugs are coming from places like Mexico and China. And so those countries obviously see 
or the drug cartels in those countries see the opportunity um, to exploit um, the problem that we've already had in America and flood our streets with those drugs. And I know that, uh, you know, I was just mentioned the one case in Florida. It was DEA-led, but you guys also work a lot with your state and local law enforcement partners as well in combating this issue. So I think that collaborative element of it is probably very important to the investigative work that you do. Well, it is. And and our state and local partners have always been the true backbone of what we do at DEA. Um, We're a lean agency when you compare us to other agencies Mm -hmm. Um, but we have deputized task force officers from our local police departments and state agencies across the country. We also partner with our state regulatory boards, our pharmacy boards, our medical boards, in order to look at the pharmacies and the prescribers. And in recent years, with um, some of the initiatives that have taken root here in Washington, we've got um, new partnerships within DOJ and with um, within Health and Human Services Administration. So we're all working on this together to make our communities safer. That's incredible. And I mean, Catherine mentioned earlier the whole D.A.R.E. program. And I I come from a law enforcement (laughs) family. My dad was a D.A.R.E. officer Mm -hmm. back when I was a kid. And, you know, I remember him talking about how, you know, getting in with these kids young, being a local officer Mm -hmm. that they can turn to. I I imagine that it's that those strong partnerships for the people who know the community and then you guys who really know the problem and can better see the problem from a national level working together they're so important. Right. And I think when we mentioned before about trying to get one of our biggest things is to try to get down into the neighborhoods and the communities. Right. We can sit from our big chairs in the federal government and say this is what we need to do. But at our agency in particular, which I absolutely love, is we get down there into the neighborhoods and the communities where we all live and we all go to school. You know, our kids go to school with each other and we're trying to fix that problem. How do we do that? And we can talk about the words collaboration and synergies and all these fun things, but really we do that on an everyday basis on a throughout our ranks. So we have so many different programs, and I think it's something we don't talk about enough where we work with the local law enforcement, we work with the local partners, and I can we can give examples and examples of that, but it's unique for every community. So how do we address the entire issue of opioids and meth and heroin and all these things is different in each community. That can be, we have the deputized task force officers. So that means we have different local agencies work as DEA agents and are out there. And so we have a lot more people doing it. That is, we have a whole bunch of training we give to local and tribal and state officers to see what's out there, to identify these drugs, to identify issues. We have training for Uh, community partners. And then when we have big problems and initiatives, like for example, in our division, in Frederick, Maryland, we had to, we debutized almost every single person in the police force up there because we were really helping with an initiative on diversion and tactical diversion stuff. And that can happen from initiatives, that can happen overall. And it's where the issues, how can we address them and who can we work with? So from a classical business sense, that cross-functional work is very impressive and very agile for a, um, a federal agency. And that's kind of how we can attack it every day is kind of a little different. But then again, so is the drug problem, right? Well, and that's something Justin discussed earlier mm-hmm. is how, you know, opioids are right now. It seems like they're touching every corner of the country. Yep. But so many other issues and, you know, um, whether it's heroin or methamphetamine, they're there's their location specific. They look different in different areas of the country. So having that collaboration helps unite everyone under what is similar, but also distinguish people and where they are different. And it gives you that two pronged approach. It's a key. It's a key thing to handle stuff like that. Definitely. Because the 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 good answer to all these, how do you address the drug problem is the answer we all hate is it depends, right? And it depends yeah. on the area. It depends on the issue. It depends on the time. And to be able to stay agile enough to move with that dynamic threat as it moves is what we're trying to do and what I think the answer is. Wow. And, and we are always going after the, the big suppliers, the big fish. Right. But when you get a call from a small town police department that may not make national news, but it truly impacts that area, when you can help that small thousand person, um, city, it really makes you feel good about what you're doing. It can have a huge impact. 
Well, and I know it makes all the difference to communities that are really struggling and have been really dealing with the negative side of the opioid epidemic to have you guys be able to come in. And, you know, like you said, it might not be the biggest case in the country, but it's a case that makes a difference to that community. And um, I mean, I I know a lot of communities can be broken by the opioid epidemic. So the fact that you guys are able to come in is very helpful. We are right up against our second break here. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the diversion control and the regulatory aspect of this. We'll continue our discussion after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I am here with representatives from the Drug Enforcement Administration, Justin Woods and Katherine Hayek. We are, you know, we just spent a little bit of time talking about the law enforcement aspect of their work, but that truly is only one part of a 360 approach that addresses the drug problem in this country in its entirety. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize about the Mm -hmm. DEA is that it's a lot more than just law enforcement. It is also uh, dealing with diversion control, the regulatory aspect of it. And Justin, I know that's what you do on the front lines. Uh, So for the people out there who really have never heard of these other aspects of the DEA, what exactly is diversion? So I I sort of tell people when I speak to them that we're the part of DEA that they don't make movies about. So uh, maybe maybe one day they will. Maybe Ben Affleck can play me. But, um, Unsung hero. But, um, but we're a big part of, of, of the drug problem and controlling it. And, and what we do is we regulate the controlled substance industry. So if, if you look at it like this, from maker to taker, so from the point of a manufacturer to the, the taker, the patient, we regulate that industry. And so how we do that, we actually – We'll set quotas on raw materials that come from overseas, your, your poppy straw, your opium, that actually go into making the, the synthetic opioids. And we regulate um, the pills at all points of the distribution chain. So how they're manufactured to the wholesale distrib- distributors, down to the pharmacies and the doctor's offices until they get to the patient. And any deviation along the way is what we consider diversion. It's when, um, you know, the drugs exit the the closed system of distribution. Yeah, it's meant to be a very, you know, tight, closed system. So I feel like as soon as you have a diversion, um, it it seems like it could be almost hard to identify. You know, I mean, you're tracking individual pills. Mm-hmm. It's That's like a crazy concept to me. Uh, how do you guys keep track of when drugs are lost or stolen? So we obviously have the regulations that define the security procedures, which help safeguard the drugs. All handlers of controlled substances have to set up effective safeguards to prevent it. Um, And then they also have to keep records of all transfers. So if a manufacturer, you know, makes a thousand pills, there has to be a record of those thousand pills moving to the distributor. And then there's a record from the distributor to the hundred count bottles at the pharmacy. And so it involves each handler of those drugs being registered with us, which you can think about it like a license. We give them the authority to handle those drugs. And with that authority, it's, it's a huge responsibility. We ask the community to set up the safeguards, um, keep the records that are required under the law, keep the proper security, 
And when they identify diversion or problems, to report that. Reporting is a big pro- uh, a big part of preventing deviations and problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to give you one example of a case I worked years ago, it was a, at a drug manufacturer, and there was someone along the line, as you would put in the raw powder, just to simplify it, as it goes into tablet form, he was able to divert large quantities of the powder inside the actual s- sleeve of his gown. Oh, wow. You know, they, they wear sort of like, if you think about a clean room bunny suit yeah. from head to toe, because <laughs> it's in a sterile environment, he was able to divert hydrocodone powder in the sleeve of his coat wow. that he would wear as part of his job. Um, you know, insider threats at some of these companies are huge. People that maybe have worked there for 20 years, they may divert from a pharmacy or um, a hospital, things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, we touched on it earlier. Most of the people who work in these environments are doing the right thing. Um, but, you know, there's always a few bad actors mm-hmm. and being able to identify them is, I'm sure, really difficult. But this regulatory process is so important. You talked about how you have the licenses for people. Um, so you kind of have a way to follow the chain as it moves. But I imagine you can't do that alone. Um, you guys have partners in this process, correct? C- correct. We we have our state partners, the regulatory boards that also issue state licenses to your practitioners, your pharmacies, the drug distributors and manufacturers. But we really have to rely on the industry itself to partner with us to, to keep this problem from escalating. And for example, if a drug distributor is supplying a pharmacy and that pharmacy is ordering excessive quantities of drugs, that suspicious order has to be reported to DEA. Uh, we just do not have the manpower to like examine every single order. And that's why we expect and rely on the industry to do their part to keep our, our streets and communities safe. Right. And I think a lot of that, too, it, 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 it's hard to do everything ourselves, right? And we can only ask so much. But the good part about this is that these companies are usually incentivized to do the reporting, right? It helps them, <clears throat> help us, help them. And a lot of that incentivizing is just, it's very much like a regular business. Every single business deals with insider threat and fraud, and they all have those systems set up to both try to catch that as well as incentivize good behavior. And we try to do very similar. Uh, the stakes are just a lot higher, right? So being able to be very vigilant on our part, as well as going out and um, speaking to and educating all these companies, pharmacies, doctors about these procedures and how they can help better is continual work we do in that regard as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a joint effort that you guys have actually worked on with the FDA relating to Internet mm-hmm. sales of um, drugs. And if you could talk a little bit about why that was necessary. Sure. Well, you know, FDA has been a tremendous partner to us for years, and, and I've personally worked internet cases with FDA as, as far back as 2005. They've always been a great partner. Um, but in, I believe, September of this year, we issued a joint statement on some of the um, website operators who are just out there advertising, marketing, misbranded drugs, counterfeit drugs. And so it's just sort of uh, what we've always done, but getting the message out and issu- issuing that warning that the federal government, we're going to work together to combat this problem. Yep. Yeah, we see what you're doing and we're going to address it if need be. I think that was really a, a cool thing that you guys did because with the advent of the internet, it I think adds a layer of complexity to this entire fight um, in the sense that you guys are no longer just looking at what's directly in front of you, but you also have to look at what's going on on the internet and on the webs too. Yeah, as an understatement, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, and this is an aside, again, as we talked about staying agile and dynamic for that dynamic threat, is at the same time we see that going on, you can see our headquarters operations has really been pushing um, our cyber unit to be able to uh, really do a lot of those online investigations, right, in tangent and cross-functionally with our diversion efforts and in our enforcement efforts. And so as we see these threats pop up, which that was a great example of, we're trying to address them in the best way possible. Yeah, and I'm curious about some of the other types of cases relating to the pharmaceutical industry that you have seen. Sure. Um So it's one of those things, right when you think you've seen it all, you see something Mm -hmm. even crazier. Um, 
a really interesting case that I worked um, in 2011 when I was in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I'd gotten a call from a local police department in Nashville along with postal inspectors, and the, the postal service had identified a, a package that had somehow come open and it was full of pills. And so um, to make a long story short, um, we identified someone who was obtaining pills and we went and interviewed the gentleman and he said, hey, I was looking in um, what he called a thrifty nickel magazine, which is like a little magazine you'd find in the gas station that mm -hmm. advertises, you know, used cars. He found a little ad on it, 1-800, you know, get meds or something like that. And so the, the scheme was as simple as ordering a pizza. You would call this number and then a few days later, you would receive hydrocodone or Xanax in the mail. There's no medical exam. There's no uh, online exam, nothing. There's no interaction between any type of medical professional. It was literally ordering a pizza easy. And so basically these drugs were coming out of a Florida and from a Florida pharmacy and they were going all over the country, and we were able to successfully investigate and prosecute um, a pharmacist. And this was a, um, a pharmacist who had been in business for years and, and had a well, a really well, uh, good reputation in the community, but he got greedy. He realized that he could make a few hundred dollars by shipping these drugs through the mail. So that's, that's just one example of something crazy that we've seen. Wow, how bold. To put an advertisement in, a, you know, like a type of newspaper that just says, "Oh, come, come get meds." Like that's that's almost unbelievable to me that someone would even think to do that. And, and we we see things that are, I guess, less bold. I've worked cases of pharmacy technicians who steal bottles of unopened pills out of the pharmacy hospital workers who are, you know, taking pills out of the uh, automated dispensing systems that are on the hospital floors. So we see all levels of diversion and, and crime. And the one theme to all this is the human factor. Mm -hmm. As long as there's humans working around pills and, and we're dealing with addiction and, and, and in many cases greed, because these, these pills do have such a high street value, you're going to have drug diversion. Right. And uh, my background is a lot in fraud examination. And I think it's the same thing as you have those same indicators of greed and fraud and need, right? And they all come up and there are only so many policies and investigative techniques that you can do to catch them. And I think that's, again, why our our public outreach and our tips that we get from the public and members of the registrant uh, population are so important because you would, you know, examples that you would never think of and you would never want to create a policy for if it's a one-off still need to be caught. And I think that outreach really helps us get as much as we can, but we can, we always would like to get everybody who's doing that so we can clean up that system for the good actors who are the majority. Exactly. And I think that's you know, like you said, there's always going to be bad actors. There will always be pe – there's a human element of it. People – there will always be people who get greedy, who, you know, I mean, I think of that case you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. He's sending things outside of his community, so he almost doesn't even see the immediate impact of it. He gets to disassociate himself a little bit. That's the important part, right? It's yeah. like the, the hard part about this is not that we're out there to catch everyone. The hard part – at least for us as humans, right, because we are the federal government, but we certainly act as human beings, is the horrible impact these have on our communities. And now our local communities across the country are seeing that, right? And that is really why we're here every day is because we care about our neighborhoods, our communities, our kids, our families, our neighbors, to be able to get these, not just bad actors, but the problems they're bringing yes. off out of our neighborhoods, out of our homes, out of our streets. And that's what gets us up every day, right? No. Yeah, I think that we think about the impact it has on our community, but you also have to keep in mind what an impact it has on us as patients. Right. Mm -hmm. Because as we work cases, um, some prescribers become afraid to treat people who Definitely. need it. And what I try to explain to practitioners is the people we investigate – they're the very, very, very small amount. We deal mm -hmm. with over 1.4 million prescribers. Um, 
And the vast majority are doing the right thing. They're helping us as patients. But what's sort of been sort of a negative to all this is that some people, when they do have a legitimate condition, they may be questioned, like, are you mm-hmm. really in pain? Do you n- need treatment? So that's that's sort of a bad side effect, all this. Right. And that's probably one of the keys to our, I would say, outreach or collaborative efforts is really being able to speak to the prescribers, to the pharmacists, to the, the registrants in particular. I know I have doctors in my family, right? And my uncles, we talk about this and they worry, you know, they'll come to me and worry about what do I need to do here or there? And I think the point is, and we like to push this out there across the nation, across our divisions, is, you know, the good actors, we want to help you with what you need to do with our policies and with our outreach. And we want to be able to weed out the very small population of bad actors so you can do this better both for yourself and your patients. Yeah, absolutely. I I think a common theme that we've discussed that is so important to this conversation is that you know, you can work with the FDA, you can work with the FBI, you can work with all these mm-hmm. different groups, but at the end of the day, your best partner is the good doctors on the ground who don't want to see their communities destroyed by a small group of bad actors that are pushing bad drugs into communities. We are going to talk a lot more about your outreach efforts, but we are going to stop here for a final word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show with my representatives from the Drug Enforcement Administration, Justin Woods and Katherine Hayek. And we've been talking a lot about the different ways that they have been working to combat the opioid epidemic, both on the law enforcement and the regulatory front. But a common theme we've discussed is how the most important people here are really your the partners on the ground, the outreach that you can do to make sure communities know about what's going on and what the safest path forward is. So you guys just wrapped up your Red Ribbon Week. I'd love to hear about some, you know, what are the pillars of this week and what are some of the stuff you've done, Catherine? Yeah, so um, Red Ribbon Week has been a campaign that we've been doing for a number of years now. Um, in some, it started from, uh, I think it was 1988, if I'm correct. And um, Kiki Camarena, which he, in short, he was the ultimate special agent, right? Yes. He was the guy who was former military and had all the the background, all the accolades. Unfortunately, he was fighting what we used to call, right, the drug war, but he was fighting this good fight we're trying to combat, you know, cartels in uh, Mexico. And he was uh, captured and tortured and subsequently killed, which is the saddest story. And we wanted to remember that. But I think the point is we took his memory and his family pushes this across the nation, DEA or otherwise. We try to lead it, but anyone can have a red ribbon event and really push that message of this this fight to keep our our communities, our neighborhoods, our children drug free. Right. And in doing so, we have this campaign of Red Ribbon Week that a lot of you see in a lot of our schools. Um, You also see them across different community groups, but we've pretty much celebrated all of October now. And it's just a campaign for awareness to be able to prevent the use of drugs uh, or illegal drugs. Right. And for that outreach portion, part of that now uh, is our take back initiative, which I know a lot of people hear about. And it's specifically hits on, you know, hits home with this opioid epidemic is let's help you clear out your cabinets. Right. 
And it started a number of years ago, and we're also trying to come up with ways for permanent and sustainable solutions. So we work with, you know, go back to collaboration. We work with a lot of our partners to help resource them from a state or federal level to get permanent take back locations in this area. We have them at a lot of the state barracks, at a lot of the uh, local PDs and some firehouses, some uh, pharmacies even. And to be able to do things like that are all part of that campaign to bring awareness and prevention. And then, of course, we do this all year long. And I can go on and on about how we like to do that. But essentially, a lot of people will come to our division and ask us to come out and speak to the kids at school, you know, or come out to a birthday party, you know, because they want to meet the agents. We we even recently went out to a Redskins game and we partnered with the Redskins and we've done this with the Wizards and the Caps and, you know, a bunch of the other teams here where we go out and we're out there, we're shaking hands, we're giving out information, we give out little, you know, tchotchkes for lack of a better term to bring that awareness. And, you know, we we also bring out our clan lab truck, which is our cool STEM stuff. It's a, a clandestine laboratory truck about, you know, chemicals and all that. And we bring out our helicopters, people who can talk to us, see we're human, and be able to talk to us about what we do is a great way to do outreach. So we do it across the board. Well, and I love that you brought up the, uh, you know, Kiki story, Mm -hmm. because I think it really humanizes a lot of this. You know, we hear of the DEA and it's it's a fun, it's like a crazy movie and it's the law enforcement but there are all these other aspects of it. There's the STEM. There's, the, you know, all these very human, real things that mm-hmm. um, are involved with your agency and addressing this problem. And I think that by humanizing it, you guys really do a great job of creating that real genuine connection with the communities. And I think that's really great. You know, on National Take Back Day, I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what do you do with all of the drugs that get turned into you guys? So um, it's it's a big process to organize such an event. Um, <laughs> As take, you can hear, Justin, taking a sigh of relief that it's it's now over. But um, it's it's an event that we love. I personally um, love going out to different sites to interact with the public because we see the appreciation in in their in their faces, and and we get to talk with the public, and and a lot of times it's. Sadly, a loved one who's passed away and there's a lot of leftover medications and they want to get them out of the house where their kids and their grandkids can't get a hold of these drugs. And the people come out and and sometimes the emotions are really raw. They've just Mm -hmm. lost that loved one. And sometimes they just want someone to talk to and to hear their story. And it's a real chance to interact with the public in a positive manner and for them to see us, hey, we're, we're people we have moms and dads and grandparents we love, and it just hits home that we're all doing this for one purpose, to, to make your home safer, to make your community safer. And so we do this twice a year. We just finished um, an event last Saturday. And what happens is we work with our state police departments who man the sites along with our DEA agents and investigators. Mm-hmm. And then the drugs are collected, and then they are taken to an incinerator where they're burned, where they can never get into the wrong hands. Nice. That's incredible. Yeah, I I mean, I even think of it like, um, you know, I remember when I was growing up, there was one instance where someone had broken into our house when we weren't home, and they didn't take anything, but they went through our entire house. And when we called the police, they told us, you know, more than likely they were looking to see if you had any extra pills hanging around, you know, that, you know, someone had a surgery, they left some pills in their cabinet. And that was such a wake-up call for us about Mm -hmm. how real this problem is, you know, that someone who's unfortunately addicted would do that. Um, or whatever. And so, it, you know, for us, it was very, it, it made the National Take Back Day very real. And it's something that we think about very often, I know, in my family. And I'm sure as you guys publicize this more, mm-hmm. it's really cues people into how big of a problem this is mm-hmm. and it motivates them to what can I do in my home to right. help stop the opioid epidemic. And it is as, it can be as simple as making sure those aren't in your home so that they can't fall into the wrong hands. Right. And that's why we still do this is we get a lot of questions is why don't we just have permanent locations all over the place and why are we doing this still twice a year? The turnout is incredible. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of medication return. 
But it's incredible also because, as Justin mentioned, we have every single person in our division who can go out to these sites so we can have as many sites as possible. And that goes back to it may not give us the biggest reach if we are talking to people based on their community, based on their neighborhood. Like I am out there with my neighbors. I'm out there with the people in my county and the people in my gym, right? But it makes a huge difference for each person. And that's where we try to make the difference. We're not trying to make the difference by being able to wave a wand and fix the problem, but we're trying to make the difference in every single story and in every single life. And I think that is a great example of the example you used and the one Justin used and why we do Take Back every year. Yeah, absolutely. And I know part of your other outreach is working with doctors and hospitals. And Justin, I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, some of the work that you do to help make sure doctors know that they're doing the right thing and that, you know, we talked about how this is a very scary time for doctors. They don't know. Mm -hmm. They're worried about prescribing. So what's some of the outreach you do on that front? Sure. So we, when invited, we'll go to medical schools, pharmacy schools, uh, or grand rounds at at medical schools and hospitals. And we really just try to... um, you know, tell them who we are and what we do and and how they can be a, a part of the solution and, and work with us and, and show them we're not really that scary after all and that we're here to help. And just this past week, I was at the, the Veterans Administration Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, teaching the providers there about how they can better safeguard the drugs and prevent diversion. So it's just a huge opportunity to, to get the message out. Wow, that's so important, especially I think that partnership with the VA, because we see so many veterans coming back to this country, you know, getting health care. And and Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I think it's very common for them to fall into substance abuse. And so I think, you know, particularly that that work with the VA is very important and it it helps doctors ensure that they're always doing the right thing, too. And we've talked significantly about how this is an all-around effort in every aspect of the community. We are in our last minute or so of the show, but if there's a doctor listening or someone in, you know, who has a tip that thinks that there might be something wrong in their community, I want you guys to give a chance to tell people how they can connect and how they can play a part in this. Sure. And, you know, I think the easiest way anyone can send a tip is to just go on. If it, you know you have Internet, you can go onto our website at DEA.gov. And there are lots of different information and resources there. Our tip line is there. You can submit it electronically, totally anonymously. And we're trying to streamline that as well. We'll have numbers you can call as well on there. Anything you need, right on that DEA.gov. Also, you can find your local division, right? And the local division, so for example, we're the Washington Field Division, and their divisions all over the country and internationally have their own website on there as well. And you can find numbers you can call to reach out for outreach. You can reach out to talk at conferences or events, and you can reach out to report what you need. We're always there because we want to help on that one-to-one basis, and we try to give you the resources there that you can use to do that. That's incredible, guys. I really want to thank you so much, Justin and Catherine, for chatting with us today. This is such an important initiative, and it really does involve everyone all across the country. So thank you so much for both being here. Thanks so much for having us. us. And thank you guys, everyone at home, for joining us on Fed Talk. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm, Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Have a great weekend.